God is good. You guys have been Presbyterianized. Uh, you look like a bunch of pilgrims out there. Come on, God is good. And all the time. All right, the question we want to ask this morning is, is that true? Is it true? Um, is it okay to ask that question? Is it okay to ask, is God, is God good? Is it okay to ask that? In the text we're looking at this morning, it asks that very question. It states that Sunday school answer that we all know that the Bible teaches that God is good. But then the rest of the passage, uh, the psalmist begins to really wrestle with that question. He begins to uh, take that theological truth that he's heard all his life. But then he goes to the next and look, looks at his circumstances and then begins to think, is God really good? And then he asks a second question, is following God even worth it? Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever had questions about God's goodness? Questions about God? Question about if God is even there? Um, the text we're looking at this morning, he's asking those questions. And I think uh, that we see this throughout the Bible, um, some dark places in Scripture um, and they allow us, those of us who do wrestle with those questions, um, which I uh, have before, um, that's, a, that's a struggle that I've had in my life, um, it allows those of us who do struggle with things like this to be honest about them. And so I think that um, it's not a matter of whether or not we have these questions, but instead it's when we do have them, what do we do with them? Are we honest? Or do we put a smile on our face and pretend like it's okay? Or worse, do we give in to them and just, and just reject everything? And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. Uh, the psalm is Psalm 73, and it begins in a really dark place. And yet, uh, he starts in a dark place where he's questioning God's goodness and he admits to almost walking away from the faith. And yet at the end of the psalm, he ends up in a very good place. Um, and so he moves from hopelessness and despair because of his situation that he's in. And ultimately, his heart and his mind is transformed into genuine trust and confidence in God's goodness. And so what we want to figure out is, how does he move from a place of despair to a place of hope? And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. Let's read Psalm 73 together. It's 28 verses total this morning. Um, we're going to read the first three. Uh, uh, first three verses, which talk about a struggle, and then we're going to read the last two verses, uh, which show us where he ends up. And then the rest of the, the time uh, together this morning, we're going to be looking at the verses in between that show how he moves from point A to point B. Psalm 73, this is the word of the Lord, a psalm of Asaph. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me... My feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Now let's read his conclusion at the end. Verse 27. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. Let's pray. Father, you know the struggles of my own heart. God, you know the struggles of my mind. Um, God, you know that I am someone of weak faith. And God, I know that I'm not the only one in this room. Uh, the truth is that when I'm uh, focused on myself and focused on my struggles, 
My tendency is to think that I'm the only one who goes through going through these things. But God, that's not the truth. And I know that there are people in this room who struggle with such things, who are struggling with looking at their circumstances and struggling with wonder, wondering whether or not you are good and whether or not you're worth it. Um, God, we know that you're worth it. And the Bible declares that truth. But God, I pray that we wouldn't just give lip service to the fact that you're good, but God, that our hearts would be aligned with our mouths. God, that we wouldn't just sing and we wouldn't just say and we wouldn't just pray that you are good, but God, that we would really be convinced of it and we would live our entire lives differently because you are good. And so God, just as you did this for Asaph, as you took him from despair and took him to hope, God, I pray that you would do the same for us this morning, that we would leave here differently. God, that we would leave here more confident. God, that we would leave here full of joy and full of peace and patience and kindness. God, that that your spirit would move in us in such a powerful way that the fruits of the spirit that we've been working through as a church, um, God, that they would be evident in our lives and that we would leave here praising your name. Pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. The five verses we just looked at, the first three, um, the first three verses that we looked at show us where Asaph's heart is. It shows us a struggle. And then the last two that we read, uh, we see where he ended up. But what we didn't read are 23 verses that are in between uh, the five verses that we, that we read. And so what I want to do this morning is just kind of walk through those 23 verses and see how is it that Asaph moved from such a place of despair to a place of hope in the end. So um, the first thing that we need to learn about our wavering thoughts about Jesus is that we are not alone. If you're struggling with wavering thoughts about Jesus, you're not alone. Um, the first thing that we can learn uh, from this text, we learn it from what's called the superscription, which is the title of the text, where it says, A Psalm of Asaph. And what we can learn from this is two things. Number one, it's a psalm, which means that this was a song written for public worship. Just like the songs that we sang this morning, what we're reading this morning was a song for God's people to come together in public worship with instruments and sing out loud. And number two, it was written by a guy named Asaph. So who is Asaph? This may not seem like a big deal, but I think it's actually a really big deal. Um, Asaph was a worship leader, and not just any worship leader, but there was a lot of them in Israel. And uh, David chose Asaph out of all the other worship leaders to be the chief worship leader in the entire nation uh, and, and God's people uh, of Israel. And so uh, what we can gather is that oftentimes we would think a leader, you know, over the entire nation, this must be somebody who's really positive, right? If he's going to get up and sing songs about Jesus and lead other people and stir their hearts to be closer to God, then surely this would be somebody who's really positive, right? But that's not what we see. We see that Asaph, as the chief worship leader, was someone who really wrestled with God. He's someone who really struggled. And what we can also figure out is that uh, this wasn't just just a song that Asaph felt, it's something that he identified with, but it's also something that lots of other people identified with as well, if it was a song used for worship that thousands of people came together and have sung. So I want to tell you, if you struggle with your thoughts about God, if you struggle with questions, you're not alone. Spiritual leaders struggle with their faith. And lots of us, there's lots of us in this room who are struggling as well. And I want you to know that this, that you're in the right place. This is a place where you can sort out those questions. This is a place where you can be honest 
about what it is that you're really thinking and a place that you can be honest about what it is that you're really feeling. Right? And ultimately, the reason why we're going to be honest is because we can be transformed. Okay? But I want you to know that you're not alone, and, I'm, and we're glad you're here. This is a place where you can be honest. And the second thing that we need to learn from this is that it's okay to be honest about our feelings. We've read verse 1 already where it says, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Um, I think that there's two layers to this sentence. It's an opening statement. I think there's multiple layers here. On one hand, uh, this is a statement. It's a theological truth. Yes, God is good to Israel. Yes, he's good to his people. He's good to those who are pure in heart. But I think that it's not only a statement, because as we read the rest of the text, what we're going to see is that it's also something in question. Yes, this is what I'm supposed to believe, but when I look at my circumstances and I look at other people, do I really believe this? Is this something I can really believe? Then we read verse 2. I know this is true, but, verse 2, as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. What Asaph is admitting is that he almost walked away from the faith, that he almost gave in. And why did he almost give in to uh, walking away from the faith? Because of verse 3, where he states, For, or because, I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. What Asaph is saying is the reason why he almost walked away from the faith is because he saw how much money the wicked have. Have you ever looked at your neighbors and thought, they're happier than I am? I'm bothering, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about God's rules. I'm trying to follow him. I'm trying to keep my heart pure. And my neighbors seem happier than me. That's what Asaph did. And then in verses 4 through 12, he gives a long description of what the wicked are like. Read this with me. This is why he's jealous of them. Verse 4, they have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from common human burdens. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. With arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? This is what the wicked are like. Always free of care. They go on amassing wealth. Who does that sound like? Verse 4. Put put this in our our language. They have no struggles like me. Verse 5. They don't have to bust their butts working mundane jobs like me. Verse 6, their stuff is much nicer than mine. I'm playing by the rules, and I'm looking like a cheap scrub, and they clothe themselves in violence. In other words, everything they have, and it's really nice, they got by hurting other people and by breaking God's laws. Verse 7, their hearts are so callous that they can do whatever they want and not have to be bothered with a guilty conscience. They'll do whatever and hurt whoever to get theirs. Verse 8, they're so cocky and arrogant that they talk trash to everyone. Verse 9, in fact, they they talk trash to God. They think no one, not even God, can stop them. In verse 10, everyone looks at them like they're heroes. In fact, everyone who's looking at them wants to be just like them, and many follow in their footsteps. In verse 11, God hasn't done a thing to stop it. Everyone else is noticing that God isn't doing anything to stop them. 
And so they're asking, does God know anything? Does he even care? And then in verse 12, he summarizes up all his feelings about the wicked. And he says, this is what they're like. They don't have to worry about a dang thing. In fact, they just get richer and richer. Now, this might seem like self-righteous anger, but I want to remind you, verse 2 and verse 3, what he says is that these are the people that he's jealous of. So this isn't self-righteous anger against the wicked because he wants what they have and he wants to be like them. That's his struggle. He wants to join their cause. So where is his anger? Where is his frustration directed? Well, he's frustrated with his own life because he's pretty miserable. And who does he see as the reason to blame for that? God. He thinks that following God is the reason why he's miserable. Look at verse 13. Surely in vain have I kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. He's disappointed with God. He's saying, here I am. I've got lots of temptations, but I'm saying no to all of them. And what has it gotten me? You know what it's gotten me? Verse 14. All day long I've been afflicted and every morning brings new punishment. In other words, God, I'm playing by your rules. And these other people out here, my neighbors, they're not playing by your rules. And I'm suffering and I'm the one being punished. And they're not playing by your rules. And you're blessing them. Look how much money they have. And look at me, I'm broke and I'm miserable. What's up with this, God? What do we make of this section? We've literally just read half the passage, 14 verses. And so far, it hasn't seemed very positive. This is supposed to be a song for God's people to stir their hearts, to bring them closer to God. Does it seem like something they'd play on positive, uh, encouraging K-love? Asaph gave full vent to his feelings. And I think that that's what we've got to learn from this section. He gave full vent to his feelings. He didn't hold back. He was honest. Um, and I think that what we need to realize is that for ourselves, those of us who are struggling, we need, to, we need to be completely honest about our own feelings. We need to be honest about our questions. We need to be honest about our skepticism. Many of us have been taught that we can't question God. But I want to tell you that what you're looking at is God's Word. This is God's inspired Word. And He gave it to us. And so I, I would say... For the, you know, we've been taught that we can't be negative, that we can't be, bring our questions. But I want to tell you, the Bible is an honest book. And I think that we can at least be as honest as the Bible. Um, this, this category would be, uh, category of the psalm would be categorized as a lament, uh, which is simply a complaint. Um, and in fact, out of the psalms, there's 150 psalms. And roughly a third of them, which is more than any other category of psalm, fall into this category, complaints. And many of these complaints are directed at other people, but many of them are also complaints to God. I just want to, I want to read just a few of these really quick. Psalm 10.1 Why, Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Psalm 22.1 and 2 My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from the words of my groaning, my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. You ever felt that way? Is it okay to feel that way? Psalm 13, 1-2. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? 
Will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? All right, what's the point here? Um, am I trying to get everybody to have negative feelings about God? No, that's not the point. Okay? But I do want to say that when we do have feelings like this, we've got to be honest about them. The Bible is an honest book. And the saints of old, those who are esteemed as, as those who are men after God's own heart, all right, are those people who are, are honest about their own feelings as well. And so we need to learn to be as honest as the Bible. And why do we do that? Is it just to vent our emotions? I think that the reason why we need to be completely honest about our negative feelings towards God is because our feelings are actually very dangerous and they're very deceptive. In verse, verse 2, Asaph admits what's at stake. It's not simply that he was having an emotional day. What was actually at stake was that Asaph almost walked away from the faith. In verse 13, he said that in vain have I washed my heart, uh, uh, have I washed my hands in innocence. In other words, it's, it's all a waste of time. That's how I feel, God. It's dangerous. Asaph almost walked away from the faith. But then in verse 15, he says something that's really weird. What I think that we want to see is it's not only dangerous uh, for ourselves when we have these negative feelings, but these feelings and these wavering thoughts are also dangerous to other people. Look at verse 15. By the way, uh, this seems like a really strange verse to me. Uh, I almost didn't include it in the sermon because I didn't know what to do with it. Um, until late this week when it dawned on me the significance, and I think it's very significant. Listen to what he says. If I had spoken out like that, in other words, everything that I just said, that God, worshiping God was in vain, if I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. What does he mean if he had spoken out like that? It's strange because he just wrote it down. (laughs) He just put it in a song, and millions of people have read this since he wrote this down. So what does he mean if he had spoken out like this? Well, I think that what he means is that if his heart had said amen. If he had said, I feel like worshiping God is a waste of time, and then, if he, and then if he had allowed himself to really believe that and he had walked away from the faith. What he's saying is, if I had spoken out like that, if I had given into that, if I had said amen, then I would have hurt a lot of other people in the process. Think about this. It's not simply that he was struggling with theoretical thoughts about God. What he's struggling with is whether or not to go back to the streets or whether to go to the streets. Um, he's seeing a lot of other people who are succeeding, right, who are making a lot of money in a way that doesn't bring honor to God. And he's thinking, maybe I should do that because it looks like their life's better than me. Right? But do you realize that the first 14 verses, when he's full of self-pity, there's only one person he's thinking about. Who is that? He's thinking about himself. Right? And it's the same thing with you and I. When we are making moral decisions, we're making ethical decisions, when we're wrestling with our thoughts about God and what we're going to do, Usually, it's because what we're, the way that we're trying to make those is, on one hand, we hold out the rewards. Well, if I, you know, if I commit this sin, I'm going to get this and this and this, right? Asaph is saying, if I join the wicked, if I go to the streets, I'm going to make a lot of money. And then he thinks about the consequences, right? And a lot of times we make our decisions that way. If the reward is greater than the risk, if it's greater than the consequence, then oftentimes we'll make that decision to give in to that sin, to give in to our temptation. What are your temptations this morning? What are the moral decisions that you're facing? Perhaps there's someone thinking about getting a divorce. Perhaps there's someone who's thinking about going to the streets. Some, maybe someone's thinking about having an affair or having sex outside of marriage. Perhaps someone's just thinking about giving up on the faith. 
realize that when we make these decisions and you're feeling self-pity, you're being so selfish. All you're thinking about is yourself. But think about when we make these decisions, who really suffers the consequences? Sure, you'll suffer some of the consequences, but who ultimately suffers are the people involved in our life. For example, when people get divorced, they get the reward of not having to work through the problem. They don't have to work through their tough marriages. But their kids have to suffer existing in a broken home the rest of their life. When we live the street life, right, we get the reward of fast money. But now there's an entire community full of children who want to be just like us. And ultimately fall in our footsteps. When we have sex outside of marriage, we get the reward of pleasure or feeling special or feeling loved or whatever it is. But it's not only our own relationship with God that we're hurting. We're allowing ourselves to be an idol in someone else's life, a stumbling block in their own relationship with God. And the list goes on and on and on. The decisions that we're making, these moral decisions, and ultimately these decisions that we're wrestling with God, it's not just about us. Sure, we might be the ones that get the reward, but we're not the only ones who share in those consequences. And so, indeed, these negative thoughts and these negative emotions that we have towards God, they're very dangerous. And we need to realize that. Um, But notice that the entire psalm begins to shift with that verse. As soon as Asaph finally took himself took his eyes off of himself for 14 verses, that's all he thought about was himself. But then, verse 15, he finally begins to look at other people, and all of a sudden the entire mood of this psalm begins to change. Asaph knew that his feelings were dangerous, and so what does he do? He finally, he brings his negative thoughts and feelings into his worship of God. He doesn't feel like it. The last person he probably feels like talking to is God. The last person that he feels like hiding into his presence. The last place that he wanted to come was to go to church. All right? But that's exactly what he does. When Asaph was struck, when he was wrestling, all right, in verse 16 it says that he tried to understand it all, but it troubled him deeply. In other words, he had a headache trying to understand it all. But when, what he did is finally he went into the sanctuary of God, and then everything changed. You see that Asaph, uh, what we're going to see is that Everything else that flows after this verse is nothing but God's pure truth. Asaph was transformed when he went into the presence of God. So what do you do when you're depressed? What do you do when you're upset? Do you stay to yourself and try to figure it out? Or do you run to God's presence? There's, a, uh, there's one word in this psalm that's the most important word, and it's really small. Um, and this word is repeated 14 times. And it's the key to understanding not only this psalm, but it's also the key when we're struggling and we're wrestling with God. That word is you. Fourteen times the psalmist says you. Who's he referring to? God. You see that when Asaph was struggling with God, he didn't run away from God, but instead he brought all of his problems, he brought his true emotions, he brought everything, all of his pain, all of his suffering, all of his misery, and he brought it to God. God, I'm bringing this to you. God, I'm suffering. Help me. Fourteen times he addresses God. And so this morning when you're struggling, or when you've struggled, when you've been depressed, who is it that you've gone to for comfort? Or what is it that you've gone to comfort? Go to God. Go directly to Him. Many of us have been taught wrongly that Sunday mornings are a place for us, and it's a time for us to leave our worries at home that we can turn our minds off of that stuff and that we can 
come into God's presence and therefore forget everything else and only think about God. But that's not what Asaph did. Instead, he brought all of his junk and he brought all of his garbage and he brought it directly to God's throne. And so the same thing for us this morning. We don't leave our problems at the door, but instead we are honest. And we bring our true selves and we bring our struggles. We bring them to God's throne and we beg him to transform us and to change us. And so that's what we see that ultimately happens with Asaph. Uh, everything changes after this verse. And so uh, what we begin to see is that Asaph was transformed by God's truth. And we see this in uh, three different ways. In verses 18 through 20, we see that he's transformed by the truth about the wicked. Uh, we also see that he's transformed by the truth about himself. And ultimately, he's transformed by the truth about God. Look at verses 18 through 20 with me. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly they are destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. They are like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. This is a very different picture than what he was painting in the opening of the psalm. In the opening psalm, it was about how successful they were. It was about how rich they were. It was about how nice their life looked compared to his. And now at the very end of the psalm, after he's gone to God's presence, he sees the true reality. And he says, you know what the wicked are like? They're like a dream. What does he mean by that? Dreams seem very realistic to us. Right? And when Asaph was looking at the wicked, he was thinking, it really looks like they're the ones who are, are really happy. It looks like their life is a lot better than mine. But what he ultimately, uh, when he's transformed by God's presence, what he sees is that, you know what? Their life is actually pretty pathetic. They really have it at some points. They re- it really does look like they get it together at some point. Right? Their life really does look happier at some point. However, it's like a dream that it's really realistic for a, for a minute, but then in the end it's all gone away. That, that their money, all their wealth, all their happiness, all that show, all that arrogance, it's all a show and it goes away. And so from this standpoint, Asaph is transformed by the truth because before he wants to join them, but now why on earth would he join them? Why on earth would he be jealous of them when they're like a dream? So Asaph is transformed by the truth about the wicked. Um, I want to look at this chart for a second. This is what, this is what our thoughts are like, our, our negative emotions. You could follow along with kind of the thought here if you look at the top left corner where it says we look at our circumstances. At the top left, uh, this, is what, this is what normally happens. We look at our difficult circumstances, all right, so we're looking at our lives, we're focusing on ourselves, and it leads to questions, right? And I want to say that's normal. It's very normal. There's nothing wrong with that. We look at our circumstances and it leads to questions. Well, God's word says this, but I'm seeing this. How, how does that work together? Right? And usually those questions begin to lead to negative feelings. We begin to really wrestle with depression. It can be, it can be very depressing. Um, we struggle with anxiety and confusion and doubt. I mean, I want to say that every single human being deals with those three things. Those three things. Looking at their circumstances, leading to questions, leading to negative feelings. The question is, uh, not if we have those, but when we have these things, what do we do with them? And what most of us do, and what's, na- what's most natural is we do what's on this chart. We then interpret our circumstances based on our feelings, right? So what if Asaph had done that? What if he had said, I'm seeing the wealth of the wicked, 
And I'm beginning to wonder, does God even notice? Does he even care? All right. And so then he has his negative feelings. I don't feel like God cares. I don't feel like he's there. And then what if he makes his decisions based on that truth? Well, if I don't feel like God's there, he must not be there. Well, then he begins to interpret not only his circumstances, but his entire life based on those emotions. And he begins to think that things are actually probably a lot worse than they actually were. He probably begins to feel full of self-pity. You know what? I don't think that God's ever been there. And then he takes those negative feelings, negative thoughts about his life, and he begins to say, you know what? I'm going to live my life based on that truth. God doesn't care. And so you know what? Screw it. Forget it all. I'm, I'm gone. I'm gone with the wicked. How stupid of a decision would he have made? And he would have destroyed his, his life. And he would have destroyed his family. And he would have hurt tons of people if he had made decisions based on his emotions. Okay? So what should we do? Well, we do what Asaph did. Look at this next slide. Notice that the first three things are exactly the same. That, we, that Asaph looks at his difficult circumstances and he has questions. He has real questions about God. And it leads to the same emotions. He's depressed. He's anxious. He has doubt. But what does he do instead? Instead of making decisions based on how he felt, based on how his emotions, instead he runs to God's presence. And he begins to think about the truth. Right? And so that's exactly what Asaph did. And when he went to God's presence... He's reminded of the truth. No. You know what? I thought that the wicked are a lot better off than me, but they're really not. That, that money's going to run out. Besides, that's not what it's really about anyway. It's not about the money. You know what? I'm pretty miserable right now. But this is just a season of my life. I'm not gonna, it's not going to be this way forever. And so his heart and his mind is transformed. And he begins to interpret not only his circumstances, but he interprets his entire life and his worldview is uh, seen through this new world seen through this new lens, right? that God is in control, that God is good, and that is good to, to walk in God's footsteps. And so uh, when he goes to God's presence, what happens is God doesn't change his circumstances automatically. But what God, do, God does do is transform his mind so that when he leaves God's presence at, in the worship with God's people and he goes back home, his mind is transformed and now he looks at those same set of circumstances, but he sees them for what they really are. And so that he can go back and look at his circumstances and keep from making stupid decisions that destroy his life. Instead, he can deal with them in a much healthy, man- healthy manner. Asaph isn't only transformed uh, by the truth about the wicked, but he's also transformed about the truth about uh, himself. Look at this, this is amazing. Uh, verses 21 and 22. He says, When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a brute beast before you. Think about the difference that a- how Asaph described himself in the beginning of the psalm to how he looks at himself now. In the beginning of the psalm, what did he say? Verse 13, I've washed my hands in innocence. I'm pure in heart. Now what does he say? I was stupid. I was senseless. I was like a brute beast. What does he mean by that? He means that he was like a stupid animal that was so controlled by his emotions that he couldn't even think straight. See, that Asaph, when he goes into God's presence, he finally sees reality, and he's transformed. He sees himself, and he's transformed by the truth about himself. And what's really amazing is, after he's transformed by the truth about himself, he's finally able to see God for who God really is. 
This is one of my favorite little sections of Scripture. When Asaph realizes that he was like a brute beast before God, controlled by his emotions, then he sees God. Look at verses 23 and 24. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will take me into glory. You see what he's saying? Asaph says, I was like a brute beast before you. And yet, God, you are with me the entire time. I didn't think you were there. I didn't think you cared. And yet, even when I was at my worst and I was ready to walk away from the faith, you were holding me the entire time. When I was on the verge of losing my faith and was scared, you held me by my right hand so that I couldn't fall away. When we feel lost and we don't know where to turn, God is there to guide us with his counsel. This is the most amazing truth. Even when we are skeptical of God's promises to us, even when we doubt them, even when we're angry and frustrated with God, God hasn't given up on you. He hasn't given up on me. Even when we're at our worst, when we're at our most self-pitiful point, and we're blaming God like a three-year-old blaming their parents because they can't play in the playpen. Right? That's what we're like. What does God do? He's patient with us, and He's gracious with us, and He's there the entire time. When we doubt God's promises, they're still available to us. How do we know this is true? Because it's not about the strength of our faith, but it's the strength of the one that we put our weak faith in. And I want to tell you that Christ's blood is stronger, that it is greater than whatever sin that you're facing this morning. That Christ's blood is stronger, that it is greater, that it is more powerful than your unbelief. Look at Jesus' words in John 10. Jesus says that he's the good shepherd. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one can snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the father are one. Think about that for a minute. Jesus says that he is the good shepherd. And I want to tell you. If you have put your faith in Christ, even though that faith may be really weak, you are one of his sheep, and he is your shepherd. And what he says is, I am your shepherd, and I'm going to hold you by your hand, and no one is going to be, let, no one is going to be able to take you out of my grip, not even your doubt. And then he says, the Father is greater than all, and no one can take you out of his grip, not even your doubts, not even your unbelief. And then he says, I and the Father are one. Nobody can take you out of God's hand. Not even your doubts, not even your unbelief, not even your self-pity. I want to tell you that if you've heard God's voice this morning, you are one of his sheep. And you will not perish. God will hold you. He is worthy. We should put all of our trust in him. And I want to tell you, if you've got weak faith this morning, put it in him. It's not about how strong your faith is. It's, it's the one that you put your faith in. He is worthy of it. Trust Him. Trust Him. He is our shepherd. Let me pray. God, um, I confess my own weak faith. God, I'm reminded of um, the man in the gospel who says, Jesus, I believe, but help my unbelief. God, that's our prayer this morning. Jesus, I pray that we would be transformed by your truth and your glory in such a way, uh, God, that we would leave here very differently. 
God, I pray that we wouldn't be confident in our own works, that we wouldn't be confident in our faith, but we would be confident in you because you will not let anybody snatch us out of your hands. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.